Everybody, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. John Ramsted here and with Sandra Crawford Wilson. Sandra, today we have on Sarah Beckman. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And now, Sandra, you and I have both been through some significant challenges, haven't we? Oh my goodness. Yes, we sure have. We both have come through some significant health issues where doctors both told us we would not survive. And, um, you know, God is good and here we are, but we both went through months and months and you actually years and years of healing and recovery and hospitals and therapy and medications and doctor's appointments. And, you know, both of us had young kids at the time. And uh, so we both know what it's like to sort of walk through those phases of life, those trials and tribulations, don't we? Yeah, we sure do. And, and Sarah, you know, I, I share with you that I know for a fact this was much harder on my wife than it actually was for me, being the person constantly in surgery and recovering and not knowing my future, but the uncertainty for my wife and changing her role. And everybody out there listening, the reason that we're going to just have an amazing conversation. I was given a book that you wrote, Sarah, called Alongside. It's about loving your neighbor in their time of trial. And man, this is so much more than just, you know, in health accident. It could be financial, mental, physical. I mean, there's so many things that are happening in our world today. You're an author and a speaker. You live down in the beautiful Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was actually just down there working with the U.S. Air Force. So if I get down there again, we'll have to, we'll love to meet with you and your husband. You've been married 25 yes. years and grab lunch or dinner. And, uh, but you wrote this book, this practical guide for loving your neighbor in the time of trial. You're a speaker. You're an author. You had a, a degree in journalism from Wisconsin-Madison, and we were just talking about it before. You're also a certified communications coach, and you coach at the SCORE conference. So anybody out there that uh, really wants to who speak, not a professional public speaker, but if you speak and you really want to get better at it, I'd really recommend the SCORE conference. It's something I want to go to. Friends of mine have gone and rave about it. But So, Sarah, this there is, I'm sure, quite a backstory that has led to why you this has been part of your life, your ministry, why you wrote a book on it. And I'd love to just give some space for you to just kind of share a little bit about your story and everything that kind of led up to, you know, what you're doing now. Yeah, thanks. Well, I'm just so honored to be on the show. And I I really love when God ordains like-minded people. (laughs) And, you know, we just never would have known, right? And here we are. We have all this in common. So my story is really one of the book really chose me. I did not ever dream that I would set out to write a book on this topic. (laughs) (laughs) No one usually does expect that hardship's going to produce something like this. But when I was uh, married and had young babies, I had a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I went on bed rest for 11 weeks with my third child. And that was sort of my first foray into being having people come alongside me. And then in a period of six years, I had four back surgeries that allowed, again, me to be on the receiving end of people's kind and gracious and lovely offers of help and serving my family. I mean, and there was so many instances, and we kind of talked before we got on air, that just like people I hardly knew were showing up at my house to take care of my children. And there was people that brought dinner every Sunday night, just I'm doing this. And there was people that drove and cleaned and did errands and bought birthday gifts. I mean, the list is so long, Uh, but I was really on the receiving end for myself. But at the same time, I was also walking alongside other people in my life. So I had a good friend from church who was diagnosed with leukemia and it was sort of congruent um, to my back surgeries. And I walked with her as kind of a number one inside circle, good friend, helping, doing as much as I could for their family. So I came alongside them and then I had a neighbor who lost a husband and then she was diagnosed with breast cancer a few years later and then she passed away. And my best friend did, you know, pass away after five years. And then my brother-in-law was uh, diagnosed with melanoma and also passed away. So all of that was in about 10 years time. And I call it our decade of hardship. Yeah, no and, kidding. That, that was, yeah. That's a rough patch. And, you know, like at the moment, you don't really think about 
you're just getting by, right? Mm -hmm. You're just going one thing to the next and you're grateful for the help and you're pressing on and trying to stay positive and, and doing your part. I mean, I think you alluded to that. Sometimes the patient has a little easier job because we have a job. We know we're told what we're supposed to do. You have to do this and then you do this and then you do this. But the people in our lives don't always have concrete, tangible, this is your role and this is what you're supposed to do. So I'm sure that like for my husband, for your wife, for anyone walking with you, Sandra, it's just so hard for those people that aren't given sort of the okay, here's your job. You go to surgery, you go to physical therapy, you, you know, all those things. But what basically started happening for me is that people started reaching out to me, asking me what to do for their friends. Okay. So my friend has cancer and my friend lost their mom. What do I do? What do I say? And unbeknownst to me, I was storing up this treasure trove of knowledge and at one point or another, I realized that there was something going on out there where there were some people that seemed inherently good at coming alongside, and there was others that fell short or failed to even try. And I really wanted to bridge that gap because I felt like people really didn't lack the compassion. They just lacked the confidence mm-hmm. to love other people well. And so therefore, that was sort of all this beautiful circle of things happening at the same time. And I thought, okay, I guess I need to write a book about this. I know more than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking back on my experience because I remember, uh, Sarah, I guess it was about two years after my accident. And I was asked to be on a radio interview with Dr. James Dobson to talk about <laughs> just my experience. He w- he'd actually been there when I had my accident. And I had a severe brain injury, head injury, and there's, you know, there were some big gaps in my memory. And I started asking my wife, you know, Donna, can you maybe help me remember some of these things? And she did not want to talk about it. Mm. And she actually broke down crying because she's like, I don't want to think back on that. The only bright spot for her, because it was so hard for her, being my caregiver, trying to figure out what to do with the kids, I have no idea if I'd ever work again. Was she going to have to go back to work? These hundreds of people that came around us and served us and were there for us. Uh, I'll never forget, uh, she told me the story because I don't remember it, but it was my second brain surgery that I'd had in less than a week uh, when I was in ICU for six weeks. The family had all left. You know, when you first have an accident, everybody's there and they're sitting with you and they're right. in the hospital room, right? Well, you know what? They only can take so much time away. And so now she's alone. Uh, I guess this was about my third week in ICU. And just somebody from the community up in Montana, because this is where it had happened. We were, you know, we live in Denver. So we were out of, uh, somebody came up. uh, It was a God thing. It was a pastor from a local church and uh, found Donna because we weren't in our room. We were down in the OR and she was in the waiting room and I was in there for six hours. Wow. He just sat there with her. So she wouldn't be alone for six Mm -hmm. hours. And I got to tell you, I'm so thankful that God sent an angel just to be present. And for her, that was just a huge, meaningful thing. But I got to tell you, there's so many people that didn't know what to do or what to say because it was awkward. And, you know, this could be a life changing event. So, you know, when you see people, you hear about somebody has this event, right? Like when it first happens. There's a lot of interest, I think, in engagement, usually from our circle of friends. I think the mm-hmm. harder part is actually serving people two and three and four and six months in because it's just as hard or even harder for the family or the person going through it, isn't it? For sure. Wow, I'm just sitting here trying to collect myself after that story because that is just the essence of alongside. And I mm-hmm. just think that is exactly what God wants from us is to to really try to be aware, to be cognizant of what's going on around us to the point that we would drop what we're doing. And here's the thing, we have to be willing to enter in, Mm. to enter into someone's pain, to enter into someone's trial, to enter into that hard space where we don't exactly know what to say, we don't exactly know what to bring. I mean, I can write a book about it, but still, 
There's always exceptions. There's never concrete rules, right? But really, it takes a willing person. And and God will do the rest. I mean, he multiplies even the most meager of our efforts. That's what I just am blown away by. And I can see why your wife would remember that, because most of the time, we just really need someone to show up. Mm-hmm. Gosh, so I just I just had a comment on that, and now honestly, I'm just like so struck by that <laughs> show of compassion that I um I forgot the question you asked me. <laughs> well, you bring up a good point, right? Like when it's so like when tragedies hit, you've like one of my friends they lost you know their four year old son, mm-hmm. right? And the, I mean, there's times just even as a believer, right, where like God just doesn't make sense, right? I know He has a plan. You know, if I said that to a family that's grieving, well, God has a plan and your son's in a better place. I don't think that helps in the moment sometimes. So, you know, when you're in that kind of that place of, man, how do I help? But I don't know what to say. You know, how have you kind of stepped into some of those situations in a way that's really kind of, you know, just served those people that are in pain? I think that you really touched on it. When we talk about showing up, one thing that people told me So I basically interviewed people before Mm. I wrote this book, and I interviewed over 150 people in one form or another. I mean, some of them were really sit-down, in-depth interviews, and that was on the shorter or the smaller spectrum of people. But then I also did these larger, you know, requests and surveys and things. And the most common feedback became the chapters in the book, and it was regardless of the trial. So whether it's someone getting divorced or someone who's facing addiction with a family member or a wayward child or a loss of a child or cancer, the answers were the same. And one of them was be present for me. Mm. And so that has its own whole chapter because ultimately it's not really about what we say. It's more about not saying the wrong thing, right? So you're better off saying nothing So people really did say, just show up for me. And we had friends that lost a son to suicide Mm. and I live 1500 miles away and didn't know what to do. And so I basically just like, I wrote a blog post and I shared it with them because that's in my wheelhouse. And, and then I said, if you have time, I want to Skype with you so that I can see your faces because I can't get to your couch and sit with you. So if you're willing and want to, let's just get on the Skype. And literally we got on the Skype and looked at each other and just started crying. Mm. And, you know, then we just talked. And in the end, I was able to offer what I was good at, which is another thing that we can do is what are you gifted at? What is your skill set? What is your wheelhouse? Maybe you love to cook. Maybe you're someone who is a fix-it person. Or maybe you're someone who's really great at planning. Or maybe you're someone who's gifted at writing or organizing or photography or gardening. I mean, you can take what you're gifted at and good at and you can offer to do that thing for the person you love. And so in my case... I couldn't be there right away, but I could make plans to be there for the funeral. And what I can do is write. And so I said, if you want someone to write the eulogy for your family, if you all just give me your thoughts, I can turn it into something that's written and someone can read it. And in the end, they asked me to read it and write it. Mm. And so in the two weeks that they were doing all the planning and work that I couldn't be there for because I don't live by them. I could just focus on that job, that task. And then I was able to fly there and be there and read on behalf of their family, their words that I just wordsmithed, right? And, you know, you just don't think of those things, but they just can't, they still thank me, you know, but it's, it wasn't about me. It's just like, this is what I can offer. And so we do need to think about what can we offer and we have to be willing to offer it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because people, they, they don't know what to say, you know? And so they think, well, gosh, I don't know what to say. It's going to be awkward. So they avoid, you know, in addition to having a major, major surgery that the doctors didn't think I would survive three years ago, you know, I've also survived cancer. I also survived four miscarriages 
And God is so good and blessed me with children after those miscarriages. But um, those were, it, it was interesting for me to see because those are three very different types of trial, right? Yes. Cancer is a very, it's a public one, yes. you know, men and women get it. People of all ages get it. So, so people knew how to respond there. When I went through my surgery and literally the doctor said before the surgery, get your affairs in order, you know, which is code for, we don't yes. think you're going to make it. That was really different because some people just didn't know they couldn't make eye contact. I mean, yes. they would, they would leave things at the door but they didn't want to see me. They didn't want to talk to me. They didn't want to be around my children. They just, they felt really awkward. And then sort of the most drastic one for me was after miscarriage. People really didn't know what to say or, or do. My friends that were expecting babies, you know, they felt bad, so they didn't want to come around. So, you know, what I learned in those three different types of trial is um, exactly what you said which was, what is your Ephesians 2.10 calling? What's your set of gifts that you have for someone? Like for me personally, I'm not a great homemaker myself, right? It's a struggle <laughs> for me to make my own dinner for my three kids and clean my own house. But you know what? I can organize and I can plan and I can communicate. And, and so I kind of, for my friends, when things happen, I try to swoop in and I'm the one that goes and sits with them and says, okay, what do you need? Let's get this figured out. And you know, set up the sign up genius, for example, yes. or update their caring bridge site for them. Or, you know, for one family, I wouldn't, I went and took family pictures for them because they didn't know if they were going to have any more pictures yes. as a family. Right. And no one else even thought of that. So, you know, don't think, oh, I've got to get on this meal train and I've got to make this elaborate lasagna because that right. is definitely not my set of gifts. But really think outside the box, like, okay, what's in my wheelhouse? And whether it's taking pictures or cleaning their house or just driving them, like I needed, Jeff had to go back to work and I couldn't drive for months. Like I just needed people to drive me. I had one family who like just would say, okay, we're going to the Texas State Fair. We're going to come pick up your kids and take us, you know, take them with us. And, and that was a huge blessing because I couldn't take my kids to those kinds of things for a while. So, you know, if I can encourage people out there that are listening, I mean, this book is so amazing and so needed. But, you know, don't disappear. Like just I have friends to this day that all they could do because of where they live, the stage they were in, they could just talk to me on the phone or some of them just text messaging back and forth. Yes. And some of my deepest friendships now are people that simply for three months just text messaged me throughout the day, throughout the night. I mean, I had some very long nights of pain and, and really dark thoughts. And mm. so just do what you can, but don't disappear. Right. Is that, I mean, that's, I know that's what your book is all about. So I'm just sort of saying, you know, absolutely. Having been there just don't disappear. Don't not make eye contact because you think you don't know what to say or you don't know what to do. Even if it's a one line text message, right? Even right. if it's just, Hey, let me take your kids for an ice cream cone. Like whatever it is, every little tiny thing makes a huge difference when someone's in one of these life stages. Yes. And I mean, everything you said is so spot on. The three different trials seem like they're very different for like for the outsider and they are like for the person that wants to come alongside, they put their own boundaries around that. I loved how you said cancer is super public and people seem to know what to do. It's more socially acceptable, <laughs> but then miscarriage, yikes, I don't know what to do or potential terminal illness or, you know, terminal diagnosis. What do we do? And it's the same. And that's really what I hope the listeners hear is that you need to show up the same way that you would for any one of those things. And you can do the very same things. And, and we don't need to compartmentalize trials in that way because those unspoken, less socially acceptable type topics like suicide or addiction or divorce are the places where we need people even more. 
because it's the rare person that's going to step out in faith, enter into that situation. So all those things that you said are so great, Sandra. And I just to summarize a few things, you know, the, the ways to step in are offer your gifts or tap into your talents is the way I, re- I phrase it. To be present, to show up and, and not worry about saying all the right things, but just making your presence known. And sometimes when you're physically present, then opportunities rise for you to serve because you're there. Right. So if you show up, then you might be the one who might help write the obituary or offer to clean the kitchen or to field the phone calls or to write the thank you notes or whatever. It's because you showed up, but they're not going to have the time to call you and say, I need help with thank you notes after my loved one died. But, you know, so that brings me to another great way to serve, which is to make specific offers. So you can offer what you're good at, but you can also just specifically offer anything. But the thing you don't want to do is say, let me know what I can do. Because it's an open-ended question that puts all of the burden on the person that is already in the trial. Did you guys both experience that? Oh, so big. And you know what? Like, if somebody asks Donna, how can I help? I'll guarantee you there's a hundred things that just popped in her head, but she's in the middle of trying to, you know, figure everything else out. And she doesn't want to ask somebody, well, could you come and do laundry or clean the house or drive my kids? I think a lot of us are are sometimes reluctant to ask for specific things. We don't yes. want to inconvenience others. And right. it's really awkward, but like we had... Our house was a mess, right? I mean, Donna was at the hospital five days a week with me, and mm-hmm. we had a, a a family say, hey, we're coming over on Saturday, and we're cleaning the whole house top to bottom, which they did, and doing all your laundry, cleaning the kitchen, and cooking you dinner. I got to tell you, Donna was like in tears. Right. Uh, it was so meaningful. And when you were talking about the obituary, I was getting emotional. I was I was picturing what if that was my situation. I don't think mm-hmm. I could physically sit down and write that. Right. And the fact that you offered to do that, if I'd been in those shoes, oh my, what a blessing that must have been for that family. So yeah, think about your gifts and then just say, hey, you know what? Here's a need. I'm going to come over. I know you have all these thank you cards to write. That's hard to write in this situation after you lost a loved one. I'm going to come and help you write them. Is that okay? And they might say, you know, I want to do it myself. But you know what? I think if you offer something specific, that is so much valuable for somebody. Yeah, I was just going to say, I felt guilty when people would say, oh, what do you need? Or, you know, hey, can I do anything? You know, I wanted to just say, we're good. Uh, yeah. Could you come help me walk to the bathroom? I mean, like, right. you know, some days the kids were at school and Jeff had to go to work and I was just by myself. And that was scary. Mm-hmm. But when people would say, hey, I'm going to come sit with you. That was I was so happy to someone to just help me go from the bed to the couch and then just sit there and talk to me and bring me water. And then you exactly said it. Then they were there. So the opportunities popped up like, Oh, well, let me just go do that. Or, Oh my goodness, there are no groceries here. Let me, let me go grocery shop for you. Don't wait for the people to give you a specific thing. It's very difficult. People feel guilty. And a lot of times, you know, it's super personal. Like, you know, someone coming in and doing my laundry, like you're going to see my dirty underwear, right? Like, oh my goodness, I'm not going to ask someone, hey, could you come do the laundry and wash my dirty underwear? I mean, that's like really intense personal space. People will not ask you to do that. So those are the things that people tend to need the most, but you really do need to just offer because they're not ever going to, you know, very rarely will they say, hey, can you come do this for me? Right. And and you really are. When you say, let me know how I can help, let me know what I can do, what can I do for you, any of those phrases, you really are putting all the burden on the person who's already in trial. And especially if you keep offering and keep saying that and kind of bothering them about like coming up with something for you to do, because some people just intensely want to help, but they don't even realize the subtle nuance is that they are actually just creating extra burden for the person who is already overburdened, can't think straight, Mm -hmm. and they're pestering them. I mean, I had one woman who lost a a baby who I interviewed, and she said, honestly, I felt like I had to come up with things for people to do because they wouldn't leave me alone. You mean they kept asking, how can I help? How can I help versus saying, I'm going to come do this? Exactly. So they kept saying the generic, what can I do? 
to the point that she just was so frustrated and had to come up with things because they wouldn't leave her alone. And so this whole notion of making a specific offer just combats so many problems. It combats the notion of putting the burden on the person. Instead, it's the burden is on the person that's coming alongside. You need to be intentional, thoughtful, and offer. What could you do? And then everyone wins because you're not going to offer something that you can't do, right? And so like what you said, John, about your wife, you know, she's not going to risk asking you to do something that you might not want to do, right? If you're not a cook, she's not going to say, well, we could use a meal. And then you're like, oh gosh, I don't even cook for my own family, right? I mean, she's just not going to do that. And that's what the whole point of this is. And and honestly, there's literally lists and checklists in the book, in the chapter, about all the ways that someone who wants to come alongside can, what they can offer. Yeah, you know, something to share, too. I, you know, there's times struggling with my recovery, and I would have some people come and visit, and they were very uncomfortable with any kind of silence. So they, I felt like I was being interrogated is how it felt. <laughs> I hated the question, how do you feel, or what yeah. happened, or... I had to retell my story of what was going on over and over. And, you know, some of my friends or people that came over and were just present don't feel pressured to have to be in conversation or ask questions. Sometimes just being there is a, that was a huge comfort. And knowing that, you know what, if I'm drowsy because I just took a painkiller from whatever's going on and I can fall asleep and not have to feel like I have to entertain you or be engaged. You know, those folks that, you know, that were kind of in that mode, I really appreciated that they kind of, you know, they were there, but they also kind of gave me space to not have to talk because sometimes I did not feel like talking. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. You know, a, a lot of times, too, people that are coming out of intense health issues, you know, you also have anxiety and you, you know, you're worrying and you're financially drained and you have all this other stuff that's going on. So I had a hard time sleeping. I literally couldn't sleep. But for some reason, if someone would just come and sit there with me, it gave me this little bit of confidence, like someone was watching over. And so I had one lady and literally she would just come over and sit and she would just sit in a chair by me and read and I I could sleep when she was there. And that was such a simple thing, but it made such a huge difference because I literally, I was so afraid that I was going to die that I wouldn't let myself fall asleep. But she was, quote, watching over me, I could. And it was, you know, it's just some the simplest of things, you know, that that make a difference. It is sort of, it's an intense thing and not everyone is going to be able to do something like that. Right. But I had people that would just drop things at the door and those were huge blessings too. Right. Because you also just have the logistics of running a family that continue. Like my kids still needed school lunches and they still needed school uniforms and they needed homework. And so, you know, there was kind of the kid crew that that's all they focused on was just caring for the kids. Cause I was really yes. adamant the kids not have to suffer or miss out or even know how bad things work. They were so young. They were three, five and 11. And so, mm. you know, I, so they, there was this group and they just kind of swirled around the kids and they kept them busy and they kept them going. And took them to the school functions and the state fair. And, you know, I needed, there's a certain time when you go from shorts for the school uniform to pants. Right. And, um, and I didn't have any pants for the boys. And so people just like showed up and they just brought stuff. And, you know, if I could impart one just word of advice is don't try to overcomplicate it. Don't make it like a big fancy thing. Just the simplest of gestures make a huge difference. Yes, and practical gestures, right? Be thinking, yeah. what do your kids need? What what would I be doing today? And, yeah. you know, you can offer what you're already doing, which is a great way to, I mean, that just really ties perfectly what you're saying. You're already going to buy your kids school uniforms. So just offer to buy those things. You're already driving to soccer. You're already taking yeah. your kids to swimming. You're already going out to dinner with your family. You're already making dinner for yourself. So anything you are already doing is something that you can offer to do for your friend. And anyone can do that. 
I mean, maybe you're not cooking. So what are you doing? Are you going to the grocery store? Are you going to the post office? Are you going to Target? Are you going to Home Depot? Are you filling your car with gas? I mean, anything that you do in your day is something that someone in especially a long-term trial is also going to need, right? So it's not rocket science. I love that. It's such a great clarifying point. You do not have to overcomplicate it. And that's really was (laughs) the whole point, right, of writing a guidebook like this is so that people could open it up, put their finger down anywhere, and there'd be something on that page that they could do that day for someone they cared about. Hey, Sarah, there's so many different situations, and you have a whole section of this book about you know, discerning between some of the helpful and unhelpful words to say, Uh, because there's some things that actually are not helpful. And I'd love for you to share from your experience in your interviews, what some of those are. I think that'll take away some of the, maybe some of the insecurity or anxiety some of us have. Yes. And you covered it earlier when you said something about how people say, oh, they're in a better place or, and so what I like to call that is something that's true, but not helpful. And, you know, so there is truth. Yes, they, we might, of course, have this belief and this knowledge like, oh, yeah, they are in heaven. That is a better place than here. But the bottom line is that the person that's grieving wants their child with them now and mm-hmm. here. And so your line, your platitude, your, you know, little true statement that we throw out, you know, call them Christian platitudes, call them Bible band-aids, call them whatever you want to call them. <laughs> it might be true, but it's not helpful. And so there's a whole list of those types of things. And people, I put a post on Facebook and I said, what are some of the hurtful things people have said to you in your times of trial? (sighs) I mean, it was literally the most commented on post I have ever made. And I just wanted to cry over the things that people had said. Um, And I mean, I just put a short list in the book. So we just, you want to be thinking about the best way to think about it is that it's not your job to put the positive spin on it for them. So if they are saying, you know what, I am so relieved. I am so grateful that my mom, my daughter, my sister, my whatever is no longer suffering. We are so grateful that things ended smoothly and that they, you know, whatever it is, I mean, you could think of a hundred scenarios that you've heard. If they say it, no problem. You affirm that. Wow. You're right. That must be such a relief for your family, you know? So, but you don't get to put words in their mouth. You don't get to put a silver lining on their situation. You don't get to decide for them what, how they feel, right? So, oh, their suffering's over. You know, if you say that to them, they might feel offended, because they just really want to be holding their hands still and, and being hopeful that the suffering is going to end in life, not death, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just really hard. So I, I would say avoid true but helpful statements. I, I would just try to avoid them unless you're affirming something that they've already said. Yeah, that's great advice. And so let's say I come in and I'm sitting there and somebody's clearly, you know, they're hurting, right? I mean, this is raw and fresh, either the grief or the pain. You know, some of the questions like, hey, how are you handling this? How are you doing? I came to really dislike those. Any any thoughts right. for folks when they're kind of showing up into that situation? Somebody's really struggling that, you know, can, you know, maybe help with a way that serves them? Yes. I mean, I have several thoughts. And again, you know, one of the biggest struggles I had in writing this book is that you do need to come up with rules and guidelines for people, but they're not always 100% true, right? So I almost quit before I got this book finished uh, Mm. about 100,000 times, because every time I could name a scenario, I could think of like, maybe that one instance where that wouldn't be the case. But I tried really hard to just trust in the 80 to 90% of the time, this is going to be the right thing. And again, God's going to multiply the words on the page and I don't have to figure out all the end solutions. So my best advice is, is twofold. Number one, you just want to simply express your support Mm. and you know, you need to acknowledge the situation, especially if it's the first time you're seeing someone, it's very important to acknowledge it. I'm sorry for what you're going through. This must be hard. I can't imagine how hard it is to be stuck in a bed for this long period of time. I just want you to know that I'm here for you. I'm not going anywhere. We're not going to forget about you. 
we're going to keep showing up. You know, when you want to talk, I'll talk. If you don't want to talk, we don't need to talk. You know, like being as clear and honest and open as you can be is really important, but also affirming their feelings, right? Like we just talked about, if they say they're feeling a certain way, then you just affirm that. Again, you don't want to put emotions, feelings in their mouth. You don't want to be deciding for them how they feel. And then again, just sort of expressing that I'm going to be with you. We're here for you. And sometimes you just say nothing. But another way that we have found that is very helpful to decide what to say and not to say and when to step in and when not to and what ways are helpful is this notion of the relationship tiers. And how well you know someone is really a good indicator of how to respond in their crisis. And I wove the relationship tiers through the whole book so that people would know this is an appropriate way for a tier one relationship, meaning the very closest people to you, your really inside circle. And then this is more appropriate if you're a tier three or four, meaning you're way further out in the circle of how well you know them. So when people look at the relationship, they can know. And so what I would say, John, is that if I know you really well, I'm a tier one or even a high level tier two, I don't have to talk about it every single time we're together, right? Mm -hmm. I just know that. I don't have to say, how are you? But I would also say if I'm a three or four, it's not my job to be asking you the depth of your soul and spirit and how your well-being is, right? It's not my place because I don't have that type of relationship with you that I have that inner circle where it's my, I don't get to ask you in the grocery store, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. How's it going? Tell me everything. That's not my place. I'm a three. I'm a four. I don't know you well enough to enter into that intimate space. And so that's where it, there's a chapter in the book called It's Not About You. And it's really this notion of like, you don't get to know the scoop if you're a three or four. It's not your place. It's not your job. And I may sound really harsh when I'm saying this, but it's because it's truth. Like it's so wounding to the person. It's so exhausting to just keep going over and over and over it again with people who are like acquaintances at best, right? That is so true. <laughs> and there's some people that are just nosy, and but they're a tier three and it's not their business. It's not their place. And they don't get to have the inside scoop. So if they want to bring a meal and leave it on the front door, Yes. Amen. If they want to write a card and put it in the mail. Yes. Amen. If they want to make a post on a caring bridge and just tell you that they're thinking of you, if they want to leave an email, but even a tier three does not get access to your text messages. Because I would say that that's a more intimate space and we need to reserve that for people who are urgently in need of getting in touch with you or reaching out to you. And I did a podcast. I was thinking, John, Ryan Dobson is, mm-hmm. has become a dear friend uh, because we talked about alongside on his podcast and bless his heart. He would tell you, I mean, he's emotional anyway, but he like cried through this podcast because he was reliving his wife losing her mom and his dad going through a heart attack and the, the hurtful things that people said when mm-hmm. James, you know, James was really struggling and it was a really powerful episode, but because of that, we've become friends. And then Laura, his wife has cancer and is recovering and had surgery. And then I was on the show again and, and we did a Facebook live and, and he said that they had to change Laura's phone number. Because so many people just kept pestering and asking and reaching out and wanting to know how she was and kind of using that intimate space of a text where we think, oh, well, I mean, everyone should just be able to text someone this day and age. No, (laughs) like I really think, think twice. What kind of relationship do you have? This is a crisis. They're not just responding. And so the problem was that tier twos or threes were expecting responses and they weren't getting them and they got angry. Mm, Wow. A lot of these things are reliving things from what we went through, some very emotional things. One of the hurtful things for me though, I got to tell you, Sarah, to echo this, and it's hard to talk about though, was some people that were some of those more, I would say, tier two relationships, people I've known for a long time. 
and they would reach out. And I got to tell you, I'd look at my phone and I did not feel like answering. Yes. It was too much of an effort. And I wasn't about to just say, hey, things are great, doing well, because that wasn't true. I was hurt. I was angry. I was upset. Even though God showed up in my accident, told me he was going to save me and heal me. He told me that specifically because what happened to me should not have been survivable. Right. He didn't save me in the way that I was expecting. I mean, I, I was in the hospital for the next two years, 25 surgeries. Right. And I had friends of mine, close friends, and I'm picturing uh, two or three of them right now in my mind's eye that I think because of how I responded to their how what they were they thought they were being helpful early on totally withdrew and to yes. this day it's distant and i've even yes. tried to bring it up like hey what happened you know all of a sudden you pulled away i didn't even hear from you that was actually really really hard for me to see close friends or you know people that were acquaintances that i would you know expected to kind of be around today that are that i think because of the accident but guess what i was not emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, while I was in the middle of it, equipped to engage with people maybe the way they were expecting. And that was right. really hard. Yeah, Sandra, did you have that same situation? Yeah, I did. It's very emotional. You know, something that I saw happen, you know, it was a couple things. The the texting thing I can definitely relate to and I would just say, you know, like a, I literally, it sounds silly, but I would respond with like a heart, just a heart yeah. emoji or a thumbs up emoji. So people felt heard, but I, I literally just couldn't sometimes even hold the phone or look at the phone. But, you know, I sensed that super, super close friends, some of them almost got jealous from the other people that swooped yes. in. I, I don't. I don't know if that even makes sense. <laughs> it does. But but I you know I had really close friends that you know like they didn't really know what to do or they were super busy. They had their own thing, right? But people that weren't like necessarily in my inner circle swooped in and like just took over. I mean, this one woman was just amazing. I mean, amazing. She had a notebook and she was there for every doctor, ER, mm -hmm. urgent care visit. For like three months, like the really intense stuff, right? Where, yeah. you know, I couldn't, I was very out of it. Jeff was overwhelmed trying to care for the kids. And she would just sit there, she had a notebook and she just took notes. She just took notes of everything mm -hmm. the doctor said so we could go back and look at it. And then it got to a point where she worked with us. What did we want to ask? And she would like help write out the questions and that was so amazing. We had 11 doctors, 11 right. doctors. And what you don't know is that those doctors don't do a great job of talking to each yes. other. So they you become the, right. the courier and the interpreter between all these doctors. And when you're really ill and jacked up on all these medications and painkillers and this and that and the other, that's really, really hard. I mean, I say all the time, you know, I had people come around me and you know, I have a great husband and it was still really hard for us. Like right. older people or people that are alone and don't have that. I don't know how they do it. Yeah. And so, but this one woman, she just swooped in and she just did that. And so she was there all, all the time. And so people would come and like, she was there. And I really, I think I saw people get their feelings hurt. Like, well, why isn't that me? And I wanted to just say, you know what? I don't know how this happened. She just did it. She just swooped in and did it. Like, don't be right. offended or jealous by that. Yes. You know, yeah. be thankful. Well, Sandra, I think you're, um, you're bringing up such a great point is, you know, when people, you know, come and do, let's say I come and something's going on with you, Sarah, and I come and I spend, you know, a half hour with you or an hour or drop by and drop off a meal you're seeing a just a little kind of piece, and I'm. You're probably going to be putting your best face forward, especially if it's not a tier one person. But just us having some empathy and acknowledging that what's actually going on, like in your world right now, is so crazy and complex that you know what I need to just be good with wherever you're at. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So many things. Oh my gosh. So many things to comment on, but just a few. So number one, for the listener that wants to be better at alongside and really knowing how to love someone in these hard places, don't take offense. 
mean, there's a whole chapter. It's called chapter two. And my family has a little joke when someone is getting this way. We just kind of look at each other and go, chapter two. You know, like (laughs) they just are so all about themselves and it's just hard. It's just hard. And it's hard for both people. I understand that, but we really have to not, we have to give a lot of grace to the people that are in the trial and we have to not let our own feelings get too clouded. Um, We have to keep our motivations in mind and we just have to be not focused on ourselves, but on the person who's in trial. And it isn't a competition and we aren't supposed to get jealous because when we are, it's because we're making it about us instead of the person like Sandra or John or Sarah who are in the trial, right? It's kind of so basic, but it's the hardest thing for people to recognize in themselves that they're doing. Uh, And I've been guilty as charged. I mean, I've certainly had moments where, hey, I want to be the one that they go to. I want to be the one that's needed because sadly, we get like sort of those weird ego strokes when we're needed and when people appreciate us, right? So there is always a benefit if someone appreciates it, but we have to be willing to do it even if someone doesn't appreciate it. And of course they're going to appreciate it, but they just might not be able to remember that we did it, or they might not remember to say thank you, or they might not, you know what I mean? There's just so many things that go into it when you're in the middle of the mire you aren't supposed to be expected or held to a standard that you normally are, right? It's not a normal friendship barometer. It's a crisis. It's a trial. You know, none of the rules apply anymore. And number two thing I was thinking of when you were both talking is like, where the heck were you when I was writing this book? I wish I would have interviewed you guys because <laughs> I would have been able to get a lot of great material. Sorry to laugh about that, but wow. Um, well, we're then, here to give other people hope, Sarah. I mean, that's, yes, that's right. right. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> Such great insight. And then the other thing, it just goes right back to this notion of specific offers. And there's kind of a list of specific things that you can offer. And what you just got done talking about, Sandra, is this amazing notion of being like a medical advice collector or a hospital. I mean, and we I mean, really just write that exact job description in the book that someone can be the person who does that. And my guess is that the person that did that for you had been through something on their own that they Mm. sort of knew to do that. But like, this is what I'm trying to get at is that if people recognize that you don't have to do what you're not good at, but you can offer things that you would never realize that are tangible ways to help someone that are so necessary. And literally you just have to be willing. And that's kind of where that girl won the game, if you will, is that she was willing and she dreamed up what would be useful and knew somehow that it was useful and offered it. And of course, you're not going to turn her down because it's like, yeah, I didn't even know I needed that. And that should be our job as the alongside her to think of what they don't even know that they need and to be able to offer it. And that is the whole essence of what I think God wants us to do is to just lighten the burden just a little bit, however we can. That is what I really think loving your neighbor means. It's just, how can I enter into this hard, dark place, shine a little light, make the burden easier and be willing to carry the burden with my friend, my loved one, my neighbor, my sister, my roommate, my coworker. I mean, that's what I really think the definition of loving your neighbor is. Yeah. Yeah, And it's, it's, I tell people all the time, you know, God put me through these different situations to, to show me because I'll be caring for my elderly parents, right? Yes. I would have been such an impatient, clueless jerk with them had I not gone through these trials, especially yeah. this last one three years ago where I literally couldn't care for myself, much less anyone else. And, and, you know, I, tell people all the time, you know, it's not about you because that's what I learned. It's not about you. It's about what does this person need, whether they know I'm there, whether they can thank me, whether it's like a big hurrah. Oh, I'm here with the lasagna. Right. Right. Like it, like just let it be thankless and assume that you're not going to be noticed. Yeah. You know, but that goes back to Jesus, right? Just do what he would do and love people, not because you want anything back. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my lasting thought is it doesn't have to be a sign up genius meal train 
Like there are 9,900 other things that those people need you to come alongside them for. And sometimes it's sitting there and reading your book so they can sleep. Sometimes it's dropping off, you know, a diet green tea at the door and then texting saying, next time you're able to get up, you know, check at your door. I mean, I had people that did that and it was just, it just broke up my monotonous, awful day of recovery. So it doesn't have to be a big flashy thing, like the tiniest, most simple things, but don't expect people to remember it. Like you said, and don't expect people to, to thank you or to be a big thing. There are still three years later to this day, people that I will run into. And because I was in so much pain and so drugged up and had so much stuff going on, I'll run into them (laughs) and I'll go, Oh my gosh, you blah, 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 blah. And, and literally I didn't remember it until I saw them face to face. And that still happens three years later. So, you know, don't let your feelings be hurt. I had a head injury. So people would come and and start recounting whole conversations and things that did for me. I still, to this day, don't remember it, even though they've reminded me. And I've had some people be offended that I didn't remember what they did. And I I honestly, I don't remember, but so, yeah. Sarah, your website, it's Sarah Beckman, and it's S-A-R-A-H-B-E-C-K-M-A-N dot org, sarahbeckman.org. The book yep. is alongside what I love about it. Everybody out there listening, I'll guarantee you know somebody going through something right now, a trial. Every chapter, you know how you put this together, there's a checklist of ideas that go well beyond bringing a meal or running an errand. If you really want to serve people, and I know how meaningful it was for Donna, for the people that kept serving us after those first couple weeks of chaos when it's really kind of front and center with a lot of people, it's those people that really served her two, three, six, 12, 18 months into this that I got to tell you is what she remembers. It was a huge blessing for her. I know we've gone long here, but such an important topic. But just as we wrap up, any final thoughts, Sarah? No, I just think that it's like we said, ultimately, it's about an expression of faith and being willing to enter in to someone's hard place and knowing that even if you don't have it all figured out, you know, a book can give you ideas, but it really won't. It doesn't give you all the courage you need. You got to still just step out in faith. And I just love that God multiplies even our mm-hmm. most meager effort. And when we are willing to go to enter in, he will be right there with us. Well, Sarah, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for pressing forward those 10,000 times that you stopped because it's such a difficult subject. I truly appreciate what you've done here. I know how absolutely meaningful it was for Sandra and I and anybody else that's been through something like this. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. I'm grateful it's all come together. (laughs) I hope it's a blessing. (laughs) 